Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word together. And I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts to you, even as we open your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the, the definition of a hero? There's a lot of different ways you could go with that. At least one dictionary says that a hero is a person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. Those are three different things, right? They could be three very, very different things. But are they all things where you go, if you just do this, you're a hero. As long as you have courage, even if you do nothing with it, you're a hero, right? If you do great things for horrible reasons, but you accomplish big things, you're a hero, right? Whereas the most important part of this, the why, that it comes from degree of noble character. You didn't save the kid from the, from the building because you wanted everybody to call you a hero and you wanted that girl to actually go out with you because she thinks you're just awesome now. That didn't make you a hero. But because the child needed saving and you were willing to run in, that might. It's important when you say, I'm facing impossible obstacles. You know, why? Because I have such courage. I want to do something big. Or because I have the character to face it the right way. What makes you a hero? I think of Greek heroes like Odysseus or Heracles. Odysseus is like super smart, but he's also super strong. And he's also really clever. He's always doing little tricksy stuff. And, you know, fiercely moral if you set aside all the marital infidelity. He's great! <laughs> and that's okay, right? Heracles, classic hero. Hercules, classic hero, right? Big, strong, also clever, known for his trickiness as much as for his muscles. If you set aside the occasional rape and murder, he's really a hero, yes? You're fine with that. You want your children to grow up to be like Heracles, yes? Today I want to look a little bit at heroes, and I want to look at a little bit of a point-counterpoint of miracle babies. Because if you remember, in this series as we're walking toward Christmas, I want to look at other times in Scripture where we've seen miracle babies. Miracle baby stories that prefigure, that echo in the future what God is going to do with his son. And I want to look at true heroism. So turn with me to Judges 13, if you would, please. We're going to look at a miracle baby story that, at least at the beginning, maybe even at the end, should sound very familiar. Judges 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Do I really even need to go into all what? detail there they screwed up they keep screwing up they keep doing it and keep doing it and god keeps trying to use even their neighbors to bring them back but I, I love how the writer of the book of judges summarizes the book of judges in that time period at the end in chapter 21 stay in 13 but in chapter 21 the writer says in those days israel had no king arguably not even the one king they were supposed to have they're not even really following god instead everyone just did as they saw fit I know it's going to be hard to picture that. It's got to be hard to picture a world where everybody just does whatever is in their own self-interest, right? It's like, I'm pushing my own agenda, and I don't care about anybody else. I'm pushing my own. It's going to be hard to picture. I mean, for crying out loud, what was it? There's a woman in Florida currently suing Kraft for Velveeta shells and cheese because the box says ready in three and a half minutes. 
And her lawyer said, that doesn't take into consideration how much time it takes to open the box or to pour in the water. It's easily four, four and a half minutes. So they're suing Kraft for $5 million in damages. That's the world we live in, okay? We live in a world of self-interest. In fact, one commentator summarized what was going on in the world of the judges by saying, this is the condition of Israel. There are people who have repeatedly sinned against God, who in God's judgment have become hardened and content in their sinfulness, and who are utterly undeserving of God's mercy. Isn't that more or less where we're we're sitting now? I mean, haven't we, even if you wanted to make this argument that we started as a Christian nation, that's somewhat debatable, but even then we had this pretense of trying to be moral and then we moved to, we like being a little naughty and we know what's immoral, but we thought it was really fun and to the point where we're now deciding we need to reframe what constitutes morality. I want you, I want you to call what you used to call sin good. And I want you to call what you used to call righteousness offensive. It's not enough that I feel this way. I want you to also. Let's reframe morality. I want to be content in my sinfulness. And if you're thinking of those people who do that, you're probably part of the problem. Because both sides of every coin that I've seen in the last several years has done this. What Israel needed, what America needs, is a hero. I mean, look at the franchises that make the most money on the, on the silver screen. Aren't we craving heroes? Craving them? And not just, yeah, I want to see somebody fly. But we want to go, no, that movie's important. That's an example to all of us. That hero there, that changes things sociologically. Isn't that what we crave? A hero that changes things by showing us what we can and should be? Aren't we craving it? If so, what kind of hero should we crave? Let's look at the perfect biblical hero, right? Well, at least the perfect Greek hero, Samson. Judges chapter 13. A certain man from Zorah. I love me my maps. Zorah, that's down here. Little village over here at the bottom of the Danite territory in Israel. Certain man named, uh, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah, who's from the clan of the Danites, which is a weird clan, because unlike most of the people in Israel, they were a seafaring group. In fact, you look at that and you go, how big an area is Dan here? Not, not particularly big, but they're the second largest tribe, second only to Judah, but they're the last ones to get their own place. They're the tacked on people. Talk to me afterwards if you want to hear my take as to why that is. But they're the, the tacked on people. So this, this guy from this hick area, from this clan of Danites, the somehow perpetually last group, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. Hick people from a hick area who absolutely cannot have children. Does that sound familiar? So an angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, yep, you're sterile, you're childless, I get it, but you're going to conceive and you're going to have a son. Does that sound familiar? You cannot have a child. But an angel comes and goes, by the way, you will. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or any other fermented drink, that you don't eat anything unclean, because you are going to conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, 
set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And I, I got to remind you of uh, that Nazaritic vow, the vow of separation, what that means. It's from, uh, was it number six? I think so. But it's, it's talking about um, a vow that you take for a relatively short period of time. It's a very personal thing, but it's a very intense thing. And if you break any part of it, you have to start all over again. You just you undo it. In fact, arguably Paul in the New Testament had taken some version of a Nazaritic vow because he had shaved his head and all that stuff. But the idea is that in, in number six it has four parts. You are never to touch wine or fermented drink or even grapes. You can't come anywhere near a vineyard. You don't come anywhere near any of that. No touch any of it. Number two, no cutting your hair. The shagginess itself is a constant reminder of the vow. Number three, no touching dead bodies of any kind. Can't even go to a funeral of your family. You cannot come anywhere near a carcass or a corpse. Number four, no moral impurity, especially sexual impurity. None of that, nothing. And the angel says, that's what Samson is going to be from birth. It's supposed to be a short-time vow, a vow of absolutely intense purity. And the angel goes, right, that's his life. In fact, it doesn't start the moment he's born. It starts in the womb. I want you to take a Nazaritic vow. You are already starting this. That's how serious I want to take this. The woman explained it to her husband, and the husband said, I kind of want to understand this from the angel. And so the angel came back and explained it to him again. In fact, we're told he explains this three times in the span of 11 verses. How important is that? statistically how significant is that no no seriously this is what nazarite vow that's what i want it to be you got to do it this way the boy is to be a nazarite and i love the emphasis here set apart holy to god from birth because he's going to begin the deliverance of israel from the hands of the philistines he's going to be a deliverer like moses much like what the angel told joseph didn't he your your wife mary she's going to give birth to a son and you're to give him the name the Lord saves because your child will save his people from their sins. Samson is not supposed to be, he was never supposed to be, just a muscle-bound hero. From birth, he was supposed to be a deliverer. From birth, he's supposed to be this holy person because his strength wasn't in his hair. If you ever walk away from the Samson story going, yes, his strength is in his hair, you've missed the story. The strength isn't in the hair. It wasn't even in his muscles. It's a spiritual gift of strength. Because we're told in Judges 14.6, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power to give him strength to fight. The, or, uh, chapter 14, verse 19, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Chapter 15, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Over and over and over again. It's God's spirit giving him strength. Because that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be honoring God. It's God's strength, not Samson's strength. It's not like some genetic birthright like Heracles had. Oh, my dad was Zeus. Oh, cool. Nope. This is a gift from God. So what kind of a man was Samson? This holy guy. The holiest holy guy. He was holy before he was even born. He was holy. Holy McHoly. Totally holy guy. Judges 14 verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, which is actually in Philistine territory. Why would you go down Philistine territory? They're, they're not even your people. They're the enemies of your people. 
went down to Timnah, and there he saw a young Philistine woman. Ah, I answered my own question about a hottie. Anyway, and when he returned, he said to his father and mother, oh, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. She's pretty hot, so uh, go get her for me as my wife. In Hebrew, two words. You, get her. I know it kind of sounds a little bit nicer in English, but in Hebrew, get her. Didn't discuss it, didn't explain it. In fact, his own family's like, why, what, what, what? Why couldn't you find a nice Jewish girl? Seriously? Literally! Look at it. But it's like, why, why would you do this? What kind of a guy is this? It's the guy they raised. I mean, Joseph was a great guy, but unfortunately, as a kid, he knew it. Same thing with Samson. You know, he raised a jerk. Is he supposed to be holy to the Lord? Yep. Is he a jerk? Yep. Disrespects his parents. Disrespects the, his own nation. Can God use, can the Spirit of the Lord use somebody this broken? Even to be a deliverer. Joseph was messed up, wasn't he? Moses was messed up, wasn't he? Pharaoh was messed up, wasn't he? God could use Pharaoh. God can use us in spite of our weaknesses. But here's a thought. Maybe it'd be good for us to have as few of them as possible. You know, God can use a, 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 you know, a rusty hammer, but he'd really rather not. God can use a blunt knife, but it'd be a lot easier if you weren't. I mean, God could use Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was still morally held to account for his sinfulness. Now, verse 4 does say something crucial here. His parents didn't know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. He brought the Philistines in, but now he wants to move the Philistines out. So it's not that God is necessarily making Samson do vile things. But can he use that? Can God make use of Samson as his blunt instrument, even if he wanted him to be a scalpel? Yeah. So, just like God used Pharaoh, Samson journeys down to Timnah to get to his woman. And he's attacked by a lion. And then we're told in, uh, in verse 6, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Classic Heracles kind of you know, beefy hero type stuff, right? That's the beginning of your Marvel movie right there. Sometime later, he went back to marry the girl and he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass as one does. And in it, he... It was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped up with his hands and ate as he went along, as one does. Ew! Why would... What? And wasn't that 25% of the Nazaritic vow? Don't come in contact with the dead thing. He's like, oh, I'm scooping honey out of it and eating it. Because I'm a holy hero. I can do anything I want, right? I'm the judge of Israel. That's cool. Now, he is able to use that moment a little bit later on to do a bar bet, right? He goes and has a party, a big drinking festival in Philistine territory with the Philistines there in Timnah. And he's like, yeah, I got a bar bet. You're not going to figure out what I'm talking about, but I'm really talking about the honey I ate out of the dead lion carcass. 
And it went sour because his bride finally wheedled him and cajoled him until he told her the, the answer to the riddle at the drinking part. Wait, that's another part of the Nazaritic vow right there, isn't it? He's broken half of it already. Anyway, he had wanted to get 30 sets of clothes. He had bet 30 sets of clothes, but he lost the bet. So, I mean, what are you going to do? So an angry Samson says, all right, I'm over here in Timnah, so I'm going to go about 20 miles over to, to uh, Ashkelon, and I'm going to murder 30 innocent Philistines and take their clothes. I mean, they deserved it, right? What with them being Philistines? We hates them. You know, you're marrying one. Do you, do you actually think that they're evil? If so, why are you marrying one? And if you don't actually think they're evil, how can you justify this? Because I'm the heroic Samson. I get to do that. I get to murder innocent people, because why not? I got the 30, got 30 sets of clothes. Didn't cost me nothing. Your hero, ladies and gentlemen. Chapter 15, verse 1. Later on, in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat, went to visit his wife, and he says, I'm going to get my, I'm going to go to my wife's room, he says to her, her dad. Uh, in Hebrew, that's three words. Me wants sex. I don't know how you want to summarize that, but the father goes, ah, ah, uh, no. No, you can't. Why not? He says, I, I was so sure you thoroughly hated her that I gave her to your friend that you brought with you to the wedding. I mean, you didn't finish the wedding. You stormed off at the rehearsal dinner angry for months. I didn't expect to see you again. Does that make a certain amount of sense? So Samson said, oh, well, this time I have every right to, to get even with the Philistines. I'm really going to hurt him now. Oh, baby, I'm really... Does he have a right? He lost a bar bet and stormed off for months and she married somebody else. And he's like, that's it. I'm going to go murder some other people. I'm going to go, I'm going to do some damage. So he went out and caught 300 foxes. Oh, this is a wonderful Greek mythy kind of story. I'm going to catch 300 foxes. I'm going to tie them tail to tail in pairs. I'm going to fasten a torch to every pair of tails, light the torches, let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. I mean, yeah, the foxes are going to die, but who cares? They're only foxes. Point is, is it burns up the, sta- the, 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 the shocks and the standing grain together with all the vineyards and all the olive groves. Yeah, yeah, that'll do them. I lost a bar bet, murdered 30 of them, left. They might... Fiance went and married somebody else, so I'm going to make sure that the entire region starves. They deserve it because I got hurt. Because of my own actions, but fine. They deserve it. Right? Have I mentioned that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit? That's your hero. He wasn't a good man. Not even a particularly courageous man. If you know that you're going to win every fight, because you got God's strength. You don't need courage. But he was a doer of big things. Isn't that what you're looking for? Be honest. Sometimes. Sometimes. Aren't you looking for people to just accomplish? I mean, they may not be the greatest person in the world. They may not have the best attitude. may not have a lot of courage. But if they do what you're hoping they're going to do in Washington or for you personally or on the big screen or isn't that really kind of what you're looking for? I just want them to accomplish what I want them to accomplish. 
It's a little terrifying what we're willing to overlook as long as they do what we want a hero to do. But this tit-for-tat, eye-for-an-eye way of living doesn't stop until everybody is blinded, bloodied, and dead. Or until there's a really other juicy feed on your Instaface twit that distracts you. But in retaliation, we're told that in verse 6, the Philistines went up and burned the abandoned girl and her father to death. They couldn't get to Samson, so they just killed her. In retaliation, we're told that Samson then attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. In retaliation, we're told the Philistines invaded and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. They're over here in Judah territory. He's not even from Judah. They were afraid to go into Danite territory, so they're over the. So in retaliation, Samson found the fresh jawbone of a donkey, presumably a dead one, re-breaking this again, grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. All that's left is sexual purity, right? And the long hair. He has broken everything over and over again. Chapter 16, verse 1. One day Samson went to Gaza. Why would he go down to Gaza? That's the capital of Philistine territory. Why would you do that? And where he saw a prostitute and went in to spend the night with her. Oh, okay, my mistake. That's why he went and did that. Okay. Oh, wait, now we're just down to the hair, right? This is the judge of Israel, the one who's supposed to be their hero, supposed to be drawing them to the Lord. You go, you have broken everything except the hair thing. Then on a lark, we're told that he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate of Gaza. City gate, if you remember when we talked before, when we were talking about the, the, the sanctuary cities, that's where all the business was done. That's the important part. That's, that's the core of the city, is the city gates. He took the city gates of their capital city, and he dragged them 40 miles east to Hebron, which is a sanctuary city in Judah. This, this is your hero. But they deserved it, right? just by being Philistines. As far as we know, they didn't do anything immediately. He just didn't like them. He went down there to pick a fight. And yet God says, I can use even your sin to accomplish what I'm trying to do. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, which is actually right between, right between where he's from and Timnah. So right in there. He fell in love with a woman named Delilah. We all know this part of the story. She's the one who cut his hair, right? No! No, that is not what happened. She is the one, though, who wheedled and cajoled him until he told her that the last bit of the Nazaritic vow that he hadn't broken, the last part, was his hair. And so we're told, eventually, that having put him to sleep on her lap, Delilah called in a man to come in and shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. And in the next verse, an incredibly chilling detail. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. He had no idea, not only that his strength had left him, but that Yahweh himself had withdrawn his provision, had withdrawn his presence. Thanks to the Spirit of the Lord, Samson had all the power in the world. He'd killed a lion with his bare hands. He'd slaughtered 30 innocent men in Ashkelon. He'd killed 1,000 men at Lehi. He dragged Gaza's city gates 40 miles to Hebron. Samson was unbeatable. He was untouchable. He was a hero. Help me out here. Is it possible to be so self-assured that you're blind to your own weakness? 
Is it possible to be so self-blinded that you assume that it's everybody else who's clearly wrong and clearly weak? Is it possibly so wrong that you can't even imagine losing? Because once you get to that point, who really needs God? You go, but all the winning you ever did was because of the Spirit of the Lord. You go, yeah, but if you're used to it, who needs God? It's like the two pigs rooting for acorns under a tree and they're, and they're pulling up grass and digging through dirt so that they expose the roots and one pig looks at the other one and says, wait a minute, if we do this, doesn't the tree die? The other pig goes, well, who cares if the tree dies as long as we always have acorns? Who cares if I no longer have the Spirit of God as long as I always have the strength that the Spirit of God gave me? Samson didn't know that the Lord had left him. And when the Philistines seized him, they gouged out his eyes and they took him down to Gaza. I'm pretty sure they didn't like him in Gaza. They took him through the empty hole that used to have city gates. uh, Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Samson, the superhero judge, all the super strength in the world, his actions led to Dagon being praised instead of Yahweh. Of course, we're also told that his hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And if you remember, the whole point of the Nazareth vow is you have to keep every part. And if you screw it up, you have to start all over again, right? But you can start all over again. So while they were in high spirits, i.e., they were drunk, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us because his strength is coming back. Let us have him do some tricks. They called out Samson out of the prison and he performed for them like a trained monkey. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't he even love that, the entertainment of his enemies? Let's humiliate him. Blindly performing while everybody he hates laughed at him. I mean, we saw how he responded to humiliation before. I'm sure he appreciated this. Perfect expression of how the people of God looked for the wrong thing. They wanted, ultimately, they wanted a human king, but they wanted stuff here. They wanted impressive things done. They wanted accomplishments done. Samson was everything that they thought they wanted and none of the things that God said that they needed. He's the perfect example of that. He's the perfect example of the Greek type of classical hero. Strongest, most virile, clever. The ultimate, I did a tricksy thing like Odysseus. The ultimate, I did massive, big, heavy things like Heracles. The ultimate example of this, who is the ultimate failure of what God is looking for in a hero. Because he neglected God. The ultimate example of, in those days, Israel had no king. Everybody did as they saw fit. The ultimate example of what Jesus called blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're missing the point. Luckily, his story's not over yet. Because ironically, you could make the argument Samson was at his personal strongest after he lost all of his physical strength. He could see the most clearly after he had his eyes gouged out. Because we're told that Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Yahweh. And that's the first actual prayer we see. Earlier he said, give me something to drink. That was how he prayed before. This is the first time we hear him praying. This is the first time we hear any kind of humility. He goes, sovereign Yahweh. 
Remember me. Oh God, please strengthen me just once more. Finally recognizing that this whole time it had never been his strength. It had always been God's strength. Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple of the god Dagon there in Gaza had stood, and bracing him against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And there he pushed with all of his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and on the temple in it, and and all those people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. In his death, he was actually more victorious than he had ever been in his life. In his birth, he was an echo of the future Messiah, wasn't he? In his death, he was an echo of the future Messiah, wasn't he? It's just all that messy in-between stuff that he got all wrong. There's what he was supposed to be. There's what he did at the end. And all the stuff in between, he missed what it meant to be a hero. He missed it entirely, what it meant to be a hero. And yet, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of living his life for himself alone, dying alone, you go, but he wasn't. His God had even withdrawn his presence and his provision from, from Samson, hadn't he? And yet the moment that Samson said, Sovereign Yahweh, God was right there. He's like, oh, I, I withdrew my provision. I withdrew my presence from you, but I never withdrew my love. I'm, I'm always here. I've always been here. You screwed up absolutely everything, literally screwed up everything. And the moment you get your heart right with God, God's like, of course I'm here with you. Of course I'm here with you. God of endless love, the God of endless forgiveness, the God of endless second chances. And if we are like Israel, people who have repeatedly sinned against God, who in God's judgment have become hardened and content in our sinfulness, and who are utterly undeserving of God's mercy, isn't the whole key that we have not earned God's mercy? And isn't the whole point of Christmas, the celebration that God said, you didn't deserve any of this, you couldn't earn any of this, which is why I myself had to come. My son had to come to do and to be the hero that Samson wasn't. The deliverer that Moses only echoed. We desperately need a hero today. Not a Samson hero. We don't need more people in capes, and I love comic books as much as the next guy. We need a good hero. We need a hero that teaches us to be heroes. I don't want to learn from Samson so that I act like Samson. I want to learn like from Jesus so that I act like Jesus. I want to live according to the true hero that we see in Scripture, a person who is admired and idealized for their courage, yes, for their outstanding achievements, yes, but most crucially because all those things are from their noble qualities. That's what I want. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And we have the perfect example from history in Christ. As we come to Christmas, let me encourage you, live like you think that. Live out that hero. Live out that Miracle baby, live out that example, live out that model. And by that, I don't mean that you absolutely have to do great things, huge things. You have to be horribly courageous, great though those are. What I mean is noble character, noble character lived out. You want to know who I think is a hero? There was a deacon in Colchester 
who was completely unprepared for a sermon. He came in the winter to go to this little itty bitty primitive Methodist church to listen to his pastor give a sermon in the middle of a blizzard and the pastor never showed up because of the blizzard. There were just a handful of people there. And so the deacon's like, I guess it's me. He knew what the text was, so he stood up and just tried. He could barely get the words out. He trembled. He was shaky. Blizzard was so bad that there was a little 15-year-old kid that was on his way somewhere else and ducked into the church building because he, it was so bad out. And so this deacon stumbled through a sermon that he just tried to honor God in and led C.H. Spurgeon to the Lord, who is arguably the greatest preacher of all time who preached thousands of sermons to millions of people, wrote volumes of commentaries, changed the lives of tons of people around the world, changed the course of the church in many ways. And I say, wow, C.H. Spurgeon's a hero, right? Because he did big things. If you're not careful, that's where you go with that. C.H. Spurgeon is not a hero because he did big things. Shame on us if we ever go there. I love that C.H. Spurgeon once told another guy that he was trying to teach how to, how to, how to preach. The guy said, I, I, don't, I don't know that I set the Thames on fire at that sermon. C.H. Spurgeon said, I don't care if you set the Thames on fire. I care that if I dip you in the river, do you sizzle? That's why he's a hero. But for C.H. Spurgeon to be a hero, the hero whose ministry his ministry is based on is a deacon that will never know his name who, for all we know, preached one sermon and he didn't do a particularly good job of it. That man's a hero. We look at Samson, we go, hero. I look at Samson, I go, failure. Who's forgiven. And if he is a hero at all, it's because at the end he said, sovereign Yahweh, it's always been a gift from you. Give me that gift one more time and accomplished what God wanted. Let me encourage you this Christmas. Don't try to be Samson, please. Emulate Christ. Step out in the footsteps of C.H. Spurgeon. Or if all that seems huge, fine. Step out in the footsteps of a deacon who said, I don't know much and I can't speak well, but what I know, let me tell you. Christ the Lord is born and you're lost in your sins but you don't have to be and he's coming again can you stumbly tell people at least that much over the next month I think you can go be a hero not to be a hero but just be one for God's glory amen Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the privilege it is to know that Yahweh is my strength and my song. You have become my salvation. You are my God. I will praise you. My Father is God and I will exalt you. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is your name. Lord, help us to live. Help me to live like we take that seriously and to honor you. In Jesus' most holy name, amen.